0: So, good morning. For this morning's meditation, and I imagine for the meditations for the next few days, I'd like to change the format a little bit. Because Padmasambhava has really essentially completed his pointing out instructions. And now he's going to be giving kind of backup, reinforcement uh, from his own mind, and then citing various tantras, uh, Dzogchen tantras. And so, I'm inspired to go the route I'm about to go, uh, based in part upon some of my own experience, which is the following, and that is in the studies that I've done over the years. Like when I was studying physics at Amherst, and then when I was writing uh, writing my dissertation at Stanford, and then many, many times since then outside of academia. Um, when there's an issue that I'd really like to gain some insight into, it was a problem in physics, it was an issue in philosophy, or an issue in meditation, or whatever it might be. Um, what I wind up doing frequently, and I remember really beginning this at Amherst very clearly, is I would see the problem very cl- clearly, or I would face some, I would just drench my mind in, or drench my mind in some, some teaching, some hypothesis, some theory, some view, some, something like that. So either a question or an affirmation, but I would bring it to mind and really try to understand it conceptually, intellectually. Uh, but this is something I want a deeper insight, not just to get a conceptual understanding that I can talk about. You know, that's pretty easy. Uh, and so I would take that to mind, and then I'd set it aside, and I would go into meditation, and I would not think about it. I would not ponder it, would not think about it, analyze it. I would not even call it to mind. I would just, so it's rather, I, when I, in my, my meditation right here, which just kind of the analogy of seeding a cloud. So you, there's a cloud already there. If you, if you seed it, and you seed it well, and the circumstances are right, then lo and behold, it will rain. You know, you'll seed it, and it will rain. So it's like seeding the cloud of your mind, seeding the cloud of Dharma with Dharma, uh, such that when you simply rest, then insights arise. If you were a theist, you'd say it, it would, you, you could say it was grace. If you're not a theist, you can say it just comes right out of the nature of your substrate, substrate consciousness, or perhaps even from a deeper level, even from rikpa itself. So I found, um, well, frankly, most of the teachings that I'm giving here are coming out of my meditation. When I give commentary, so it, it's almost always coming out of meditation. So, for, so you can say, well, <laughs> then you can draw your own conclusions, you know, it's good or bad or whatever, but that is just factual statement, that almost everything I'm sharing with you is coming out of my nine hours of meditating here, and I'm not meditating on what I should be lecturing on. So for better or worse, that is a factual statement, right? Uh, and so here's what I'd like to do, and I will i plan to do this. I'm just going to take, as we'll have these nice bite-sized pieces that Rinpoche, Yatra Rinpoche commented on. I'm going to take the same bite-sized pieces, read them, give whatever commentary seems helpful fairly concisely. I'm going to do that first. Seed your mind with a cloud of Patmasambhava and these great Dzogchen tantras. Then I'll stop. And then what I suggest we do is we'll go, we'll do the, we'll do the mantra, a little bit of guru yoga with Padmasambhava, and then just go into the practice. What I would invite you to do, though, is don't think about what you just heard. Stay awake, discerning, attentive, while I'm reading it, giving commentary. But when you go into the practice, don't think about it. Don't analyze it, don't try to figure it out. You're going to just be staying up there in your mind that way. And the whole idea is we're using the mind to transcend the mind. But we're using the mind. We're not being stupid or bypassing the mind or insulting the intellect. We're using that. Right, critical faculty, constructive skepticism, absolutely thumbs up in Buddhism. Skepticism where I have a passion to know the truth and I will not stop until I know it's true. That skepticism at its best. We won't talk about skepticism at its worst, who cares? And so, let's just go right to it. But then, what do you do for method? Because the meditations will be silent. What to do then? Because we'll just do the, we'll start as we always have done over the last several days now. Uh, what I would suggest is subtle body speech and then mind the natural state. You may practice mindfulness of breathing, as I taught, what was it, uh, yesterday afternoon, I think it was. And then simply rest your awareness without object, without subject, as we've done so many times. And then when the spirit moves you, when you, feel, when you feel like it, then invert your awareness right in upon the experience of being conscious. And virtue awareness right in upon the mind and virtue awareness right in upon the observer. And then just rest. Just rest in sheer presence like that. And then see what comes up. Just see what comes up. But the fact that your mind will be seated by this wisdom of Padmasambhava and all the wisdom behind him, well, that might bring about a difference. Okay? So let's just jump in. So where I'm going here now is on page 126. And I'll modify the translation a little bit since I'm going to update it to... uh, I'm translating the terminology and so forth that I'm using nowadays as opposed to 20 years ago when I translated this text. So in 126, it's just one paragraph. If the mind is empty in the sense of being nothing or primordially non-existent, who creates the one who wanders in samsara? And who experiences suffering? even though the mind and the self are not identical, investigation into one is bound to give give rise to insight into the other. So, for example, with reference to the talk I gave last night about some people in Theravada, and other Theravada especially, some modern scholars, just say, you know, the self doesn't exist at all. That's anatta. They're trying to translate it as no self. Better translation? Not self. It's the same word in Sanskrit. Same word in Tibetan not self. This is not self, not self, not self. But the mere fact that my mind is not self, body not self, doesn't mean that there's no self at all. But there are people who draw that conclusion. So that and you draw the conclusion that you don't exist. There may be a problem there. Right? Now he's saying if you don't exist at all, whether it's your mind, if that's your conclusion, because you can't find it, right? same ontological analysis. Or if you draw the same conclusion about yourself you don't exist because you can't find yourself, then who is the one, that, who, is the one who creates the one who wanders in the samsara and who experiences suffering? If that's not your mind, if that's not who you, who? One who? Once one has become a Buddha, Padmasambhava continues, once one has become a Buddha, whence arises the primordial consciousness of knowing, the compassion of mercy and the enlightened activity of deeds, all those are experienced and created solely by this steadfast awareness that is inseparable, luminosity, cognizance, and emptiness. The phrase, the, the stainless soul I, that is singular, unique I, the stainless soul eye of primordial consciousness refers to this, the phrase is, in an instant, all phenomena are penetrated and held by great wisdom. And in quotations, the variety of phenomena with form arise from the mind. Refer to this alone. So even commentary, some even some people who imply or suggest that they have some sympathy for meditation, and for wisdom, that introspective investigation of the mind might actually give rise to some insight. You know, Some actually say that. Often they'll stop right there. Oh, but you won't learn anything about nature. You won't learn anything about the cosmos. You won't learn anything about the physical world because you'll just learn about the mind. What they're affirming here is absolute dualism. <laughs> so right back to that. Absolute dualism. That if you just probe inwards in upon the nature of consciousness, all you learn about the mind. Why? Because I guess it's hermetically sealed from the rest of the universe? It's really pretty naive thinking. You know. It's really pretty naive. And so, if this Dzogchen view is correct, then we can go right back to the Dhammapada. I love doing this. Going right back to the, the fundamental teachings, the, the foundational teachings of the Buddha Dhamma. Right? All experiences, all phenomena. Can I get it right? Arise from the mind. Three phases, and I'm forgetting one of them. All phenomena arise from the mind, consist of the mind. There's a a third one, right? now. I'm forgetting it, because I didn't come prepared on that one. How does it begin? The first one, the first phrase. Thank you. Thank you so much. All phenomena preceded by the mind issue forth from the mind and consist of the mind. Dhammapada 1.1. Thank you so much. All phenomena preceded by the mind issue forth from the mind and consist of the mind. Now, the word is dharma, phenomena. Not just thoughts, not just mental states, but phenomena as things that actually appear. He's not referring to entities that exist independently of the mind. That's not, that issue of whether there are entities that exist independently of the mind doesn't even arise. It's not being asked. Because if they exist independently of the mind, how do we ever know about them? Really, I mean, that's it. If they existed independently of the mind, how do we ever know about them? Whatever exists independently of the mind, what is whatever we know about anything always arises by way of appearances. And those appearances never exist independently of the mind. Ever, ever, ever. Right? And so all phenomena are preceded by the mind. So if you fathom the mind, you must be fathoming the very origin of all phenomena. They issue forth from the mind. If you fathom the mind, you'll know the origins of all phenomena, and they consist of the mind. They are configurations of the mind. We can think of them on two levels. Substrate, on a relative level. All the appearances, all your sensory appearances, your dream appearances, mental appearances, they're all emerging. The appearances are rousing out of the substrate. Where else? Not from the brain. Photons don't spit out appearances. Photons, neurons, and so forth, physical phenomena don't. It's, just, it's a hilarious notion that chemical electricity would actually give rise to appearances all on their own. It's hilarious. Where do all these appearances they come from the substrate? And you can actually see that happen. Right. So on the relative level, all these appearances emerge, that are preceded by the substrate. They emerge from the substrate, and then when you fall asleep, you go comatose, you die, and so forth, they dissolve back into the substrate. And they consist of configurations just like in modern quantum field theory, it said that all configurations, this is amazing, i studied this for years, according to quantum field theory, all configurations of mass energy consist of configurations of, en- of empty space, of the energy of empty space. It's brilliant physics. It's Paul Dirac. He was one of the finest ever formulated quantum field theory. I studied that quite extensively and wrote extensively on it. Well. As for configurations of mass energy and the space from which they arise, likewise for all appearances. They're preceded by the the substrate. They issue forth from the substrate. They consist of configurations of the substrate. That's on a relative level. But this is So Now when we say mind, we're referring to very subtle mind. All appearances, all of samsara and nirvana, right? All the appearances preceded by the indivisible unity of primordial consciousness and Dhammadhatu. They issue forth from, as effulgences of, the indivisible unity of this ground of being, primordial consciousness, dharma Dhatu. And they, they issue forth from, and they consist of, effulgences, expressions, creative displays of Dhamma Dhatu, primordial consciousness. Right? So, there's a bit of commentary. Move on quickly. So, but this implies, if this is true, then this implies, if you fathom the nature of consciousness, this will shed light on all of reality. Not something just hermetically sealed off from reality while the real show is going on independently of consciousness. Okay. So this is not a cloistered little thing for monks in a cave staring at the navels. You know, This is a portal to really awaken to reality as a whole. If it's not then, then this is all a fraud. Then, If it's not that, then this is all... Hocus-pocus superstition. There's nothing really in between. It's either superstition or it's really, really deep. But you can't say it's kind of nice. There's no middle ground there. Finally, it is the experienced object of discerning. It is the experienced object of discerning self-cognizing primordial consciousness. And there are other authoritative citations. So it, it is the knower and the known. It transcends duality. It transcends conceptualization, and yet its creative expressions manifest everywhere. A little commentary. So with that, let's go directly to the meditation, starting with the chanting. We'll proceed on, and the rest will be in silence.
1: 육숭, 뱀아, �esa, 동보, 라, 얌전, 촤, 쥐, Lapchil Sheksu Sanguru Pema Siddhi Um Hong Mogin Nupjam Sam Pema Gesa Dombo La Choki Mudhubne Pema Juneshesu Ta. Ordu khando mamber koa ke jesu datu ke guru perma sidi hum hum wagin yukil nupjam sam gesa dombolah Yamsen choki umudu bnye kodu kando mambe guru Om Mahum, there's a Guru Pema city
0: Please find a comfortable position. So, first of all, I'd like to correct a blatant error on my part yesterday when I made a brief passing reference to Yamantaka. Yamantaka practitioners here and listening by podcast would be slapping your foreheads when I gave the number of arms and legs of Yamantaka. Uh, you might recall that Geshingon uh, Taigi had encouraged me and then two of the other students to receive the Yamantaka empowerment from his holiness back in 1972 or so. It must have been 72 and his holiness agreed. We went in. The three tall skinny guys we went in. His holiness, yes, I'll do that. And so it was arranged. It became a public, a big event. Many, many people came. And uh, just before, like a couple of days before, it was to be, um, he was going to grant this. And we're, Gavin and Lars Mikkelsen and I were all ready to go. Just a couple of days before he gave it, um, I got my second case of hepatitis and it almost killed me. It was like getting hit by a truck. I was fl- just just whacked and couldn't make it, couldn't make it. And I think it was Gavin told me that when he was, when his was giving, giving the empowerment, and he be, just began, he said, where's Alan? And Gavin, I think, said, he's sick. He says, ah, oh, okay, and then and carried on. You know? so, so as you might have surmised then, the Yamataka practice has not been really a central focus of my attention. Uh, that was my second case of hepatitis. My third case was shortly after I took monastic ordination. And that one really almost killed me. I was down to 135 pounds, and that was really, really a close shave. And in both cases, it was Tibetan doctor, Dr. Yeshu Dundan, my medical father, and saved my life twice. He saved my life, so I'm very grateful for that. So, a brief comment about shamatha practice. Uh, I had the impression that kind of your practice is kind of up and down a bit. Um, that's the impression I've had, you know. Silly me. Uh, there's a nice phrase in physics that is directly, written, it's very strong parallel here. The, the, the phrase in physics is there are two types of equilibrium. There's a stable equilibrium and an unstable equilibrium. It's a very, very simple con- concept, and that is if you take a li- take a line, I'm going to draw it in, in, in the space in front of me. Take a line that kind of it, it's loop. It, it's a, it's curved, so it goes down and then it comes up and then it goes down and it comes up and it curves around and it goes down and it curves up and down like that. Um, then when you're on the top of a curve, like, like a wave, if you're resting right on the very top of a bell curve, you say, oh good, I'm still. Right? I mean, you're right there, right on top of it, right balanced, right in the middle of it, you know, a hump. And you say, Ah, good, this was a good day. And then somebody goes, <laughs> gives a Dharma talk or it rains, or pretty much anything, a butterfly flies by your window, and then timber, and whee, oh, happy day. Big upheavals coming. And then after a while, you come to another, another hump. Oh, this is a good day. Oh, oh whee, down you go, oh, that was a bad day. And then, and so, up and down, up and down. So, in a shamat retreat, you're just going to probably have a lot of those periods where you feel oh the practice is going so well oh the next day it was terrible and then oh it's recovering it's recovering. we're getting oh that was so good and then mm-hmm. like that. and so when you eventually achieve and that's what your moments of stability are like now they'll gradually become longer it does it's not just an endless endless cycle of up and down up and down not if the practice is being done efficiently and you have conducive environment and so on Otherwise, you know, we never even speak of achieving shamatha, and many, many people have. Um, but the periods of stability, of stillness, do start to become more frequent. They do last longer, and then finally, when you achieve shamatha, you kind of, you're really, you're settled in within the realm of samsara. You've you've settled in a ground state. You've settled in the substrate consciousness, that your consciousness that you know so much about now, at least conceptually. And you, you, you rest there and you say, wow, four hours, and whenever I come out of meditation, I can just go right back in and it's another four hours, six hours, 12 hours, whatever. It's like, whoa, now i found, now I found stability. Now i found equilibrium. i found really stable equilibrium. And relatively speaking, you're right. But when you die, whoosh, you know, ooh, into the bardo. You know, and then you're on your merry ride again. And you may be born. There are some yogis who are, you know, their meditation is so deep, so stable. They're born and they're already born with samadhi. I mean, there are such individuals. But you're still in samsara. It's just shamatha. This is why Dujam Lingba says, or Padmasambhava says, if that's all you've achieved, you've not moved one hair's breadth along the path to enlightenment. And so this whole issue of ups and downs, Gautama heading off and achieving samadhi, the incredible states of samadhi, they must have been incredibly stable. But coming out, he said, oh, this is unstable equilibrium, and he's ready to fall. And he did, right? And so one can ask, well, is there ever any end to this, or is it basically just all ups and downs, ups and downs, ups and downs? Uh, well for the materialist, yeah, if you believe that, yeah, you get final stable equilibrium, all you have to do is breathe out and not breathe in, and then you've got stable equilibrium. Part of me really wishes that were the case, but to my mind, you know, that final time I've got hepatitis, I've been studying and, and practicing pretty intensely by then. There's a 73. When I got that final case, and there were about two or three nights where I thought I had a 50-50% chance of getting through the night and not just dying in my sleep, uh, it was really, that was, I mean, every they were doing death pujas for me across the way, you know, like already saying, goodbye, farewell, da-dee-dee-dee-dee-dee. It wasn't quite that melody, but it was, you know, the same gist. Um, I looked at that. I was really, I was kind of looking at death is right there. Hello. Hello. Yes, you are so close. You're closer than my own nose. It was so close. And the thought came up at the age of 23, maybe it's oblivion. Maybe, you know, maybe, maybe it's just total termination. And then I thought back to what I had learned and experienced over the last, really, three years. And I said, yeah, dream on, buddy it just came back and said, don't be stupid. That's really, I'm not insulting anybody else. I'm just saying, when I was really facing death and I thought, well, maybe this is just lights out. From what I had understood and experienced thus far, I said, get real. That was it. That that was my response to myself. And it's never shifted. It's just gotten deeper. That's why I find it so difficult to respect the view, even though I respect many people who hold the view. I hope that's really clear by now. I find the view absurd. But I already found it ridiculous when I was 23. And not just because I got brainwashed, I wasn't. I had superb teachers who encouraged me to investigate critically. So, is there any stable equilibrium in the big picture? You know there is, it's called the ground awareness. Ground pristine awareness, ground primordial consciousness, that's stable. When you become enlightened, that's stable. When you become a Buddha, that's stable. But you're on a trajectory of increasing stability, from the time you enter the path and then deeper when you become a vidyadhara or an Arya, an Arya Bodhisattva, for example, and it just gets deeper, deeper, deeper. The fluctuations, the vacillations out into craziness, mental afflictions, lower realms of existence, and so forth, they're getting subtler and subtler and subtler. So yeah, you oscillate a little bit, but you're not, it's not wild and crazy like what it is, where we are right now. Right now, as far as I can tell, unless you're very different from me, We've got really no protection from the wildest oscillations, down to the, in the Buddha, Buddhist understanding, from the lowest dimensions of existence.'ve we got no protection, right? The highest, well, is always the ceiling. the sky is the limit for the highest. There's never a ceiling there. There's nothing we can do that is so bad. Serial killing, genocide, you name it. There's nothing that we can do that would be so bad that we'll hit an ultimate ceiling and never be able to trans, you know, transcend it, you know we're just because we're too awful. It doesn't matter who you are. There's, you look up. There is no limit. It's there's nothing in between you and Buddhahood, except a little veil.s But there's nothing we've done in the past that can block that, right? But in order to how do you say give us lower vulnerability down into mindless rage, crazy lust, jealousy, arrogance, and evil actions. Uh, well. Practicing Dharma really should be giving us more and more invulnerability to that. If it's not, then what, what's it good for? You know, it really should be protecting the mind. So the, the word mantra, they often refer to Vajrayana as Mantrayana. Mantrayana. Mantra means mind protection. The etymology, mantra, man as in manas, tra is in protection. Mantrayana. Mantrayana is mind protection. Vajrayana, Dzogchen, is mind protection. It protects us from going crazy and doing things out of the craziness of our mental afflictions and obscurations. That's what it's designed to do. That's it. Enjoy your day. See you at 4.30.